You know, the story of Jesus is amazing. Just think about a couple things. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right in the center of Israel. Grew up, his hometown was Nazareth in the northern part of Israel. During his lifetime, he never traveled more than 100 miles from his birthplace or from his hometown. Not more than 100 miles. Today, there are people in every corner of the globe who profess a personal faith in Jesus Christ. We don't have a single word that Jesus wrote down. We don't have one piece of writing that he left for us. But more books have been written about him than any person in human history. We don't have any music or songs that Jesus wrote. But he has inspired more songs and more music than anybody in human history. He was a carpenter, made some furniture. As far as we know, he wasn't an artist. Even so, we don't have any of that left to us, but he has inspired more art than anybody in human history. It's interesting, when Jesus died, the night that they took him off the cross, put him in the tomb, there were maybe, maybe 120 to 150 people who were real followers of Christ. He had 11 left, right, who were the trained followers, the 12 disciples minus Judas. We know he had a circle of women, and when they gathered in early, the early parts of the book of Acts, there were 120 people together in the upper room. So there, there may have been a few more than that, so let's, let's allow even 200 which is less than we have in this room this morning. 200 people who were, quote-unquote, followers of Christ. Today, if you Google it on your phone when you're walking across the parking lot, you leave, it would tell you that one person out of three on the planet claims to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. 2.2 billion people on the planet. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Now think about this. On Friday night, they take Jesus off the cross. They take his lifeless corpse to a tomb. They anoint it with 75 pounds or more of various spices. They roll the stone in front of it. All day Saturday, rigor mortis sets in. The body is just getting harder and stiffer. But then on Sunday morning, (laughs) things begin to change, right? What happened? What took this guy who never ventured very far from home, did a lot of teaching but never wrote anything down for us to follow, somebody who inspired people to incredible giftedness, somebody who wasn't really even successful in creating a movement, What in the world happened that he turned out to be the person who changed the world? And the answer to that question is the resurrection. The resurrection is the defining moment in the life of Christ. Luke tells us the story this way. It comes from Luke chapter 24. If you want to turn in your Bibles, that's great. We're going to move on to another passage in just a minute. If you want to use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 800. 97, so those are right underneath your seat. You can pull them out. And page 897. 
All four of the Gospels tell us about the resurrection of Jesus. But Luke puts it this way. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and they went in, but they did not find the body of Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men, other accounts tell us that they were angels, two angels stood by them in dazzling clothes, and so the women were terrified, and they bowed down to the ground. And they said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? You've come to the cemetery. That's not the place to be looking for him because he's alive. He is not here, but he has been resurrected. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day? And then they remembered his words. Good thing for us to do. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And they were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words, they, they seemed like nonsense to them. You don't know what you're talking about. It couldn't have been him. And they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. And when he stooped and to look in, he saw only the linen cloth. So he went home amazed at what had happened. Well, what did happen? What took those group of guys who were <laughs> stuck up in the upper room? The only things in their mind as Sunday morning dawned, the only things in their mind was, one, making sure that Jesus got a proper burial. And the second thing was staying out of the view of the authorities because they didn't want to get in any more trouble. Those are the only two things that were running through their minds. But something happened, right? And what happened was the resurrection. The resurrection is the defining moment in the life of Christ. It is what validates all the other defining moments that happen in the life of Christ, from his birth all the way through to eventually his second coming. Everything in between, on both sides, all of it is validated. The, the resurrection is what truly defines all of the rest of the defining moments. You know, we've been working through a series at Hope uh, called Defining Moments, and we've been looking at some events in the life of Christ and how they continue to flow out to be, create defining moments for ourselves in our own journey through life. And, and one of those is um, we looked at a couple of weeks ago was the triumphal entry. You know, he, we, we recognize that this was the moment in Jesus' life when he, quote-unquote, came out of the closet. He was he, no, more, no more shadows, no more smoke and mirrors. He stepped up and he orchestrated an event that declared to the whole world, I am the Messiah. I'm the chosen one. Go get the colt. Let's get the palms. Let's sing the hosannas. We're making absolutely crystal clear to everybody that I am the one that God spoke about centuries ago. I am the chosen one. I am the Messiah. Without the resurrection, Jesus is just another guy who was self-absorbed with his own importance and was somehow trying to get a little bit of notoriety, his few minutes in the sun, if you will, you know, his few minutes of fame. But because of the resurrection, we know that Jesus truly was the Messiah. He is the one. Same last week, we looked at the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, where Jesus wrestled with the, 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 hum, the humanity, that he, the human that he was, the person that he was. His instinct was to survive. 
Life has this desire, this instinct to want to survive. And Jesus is wrestling with that in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, and without the resurrection, Jesus didn't even follow his own advice when he processed that experience in the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Think about it. Remember, remember Jesus taught one time, he says, you know, if you're, if you're a king and you're getting ready for a battle and you've got 10,000 guys and they've got 20,000 guys and you can't win, he said you probably should negotiate. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's not going to be resurrected. He should be negotiating, or he should be running. But he's not even wise, if, if, if he's not resurrected, he's not even wise enough to follow his own teaching to get out of Dodge. The truth is that the resurrection affirms to us that Jesus really is the Messiah, and it makes all the other defining moments in the life of Christ real because it is the defining moment in his life. And so as the disciples eventually came to understand that Jesus really was alive, that the cemetery, the tomb was not the place to look for him, when he had, they had actually had their encounters with him and they realized that he's back and he's coming again, they started to tell the story. This now, this is not a group of guys who said, you know what, we'll take some risk and we'll go out and proclaim this message and we'll build this Ponzi scheme and get rich. <laughs> That's not what these guys are doing, right? The Scripture tells us that these guys risked and lost their lives in proclaiming a message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not everybody was happy they were doing that. There were some people, and one person in particular, who thought that was the most dangerous thing that could happen to those who called themselves the sons of Abraham. There, there were the apostles in the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. As the message began to spread out, they were actively proclaiming that Jesus was alive, that he'd been resurrected, that he was back, and that he was the Messiah. And there were those who said, you know what? This is going to ruin. It's going to destroy. It's going to hijack the true faith, the faith that we have from Moses, the faith that belongs to the sons of Abraham. And one of the guys who was at the forefront was a guy by the name of Saul. Right? Many of you don't know him by that name. You know him by the name Paul. And we call him today the Apostle Paul. And this guy, he, he, he was doing everything he could to get these guys who had actually experienced the risen Christ, he was getting everything he could to get them to shut up. Until when? Until he met the resurrected Christ. <laughs> He had his own, own defined moment with the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. And Jesus said, well, why are you persecuting me? And, and, and this transformation goes on. And that encounter with Christ and all of the spiritual truths that flowed from it never left the mind. It never left the teaching. It never left the heart of the Apostle Paul ever again. And literally, as you read through the writings that God inspired him to give to us, the book of Romans or in Corinthians or down the line, you can see how the impact of the resurrection, this amazing moment, this defining moment in the life of Christ, continued to shape the thinking and the truth that Paul knew to be right in the eyes of God. And I want to share a few thoughts with you today from this letter to the church at Ephesus. And I'd love for you to grab a Bible, whether it's your own or one of the ones we have, and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, our text is on page 993. Now listen, we've had a great service already. 
You know, it, it's always great to get up in the pulpit and know you can't mess it up because the music and the testimonies have already been so good that everybody's going to go out happy anyways, right? So I, I'm good, but th- there's some truths I want you to see from this passage of Scripture today that flow out of the fact that Paul, in trying to silence those who were talking about the resurrection, had his own encounter with the resurrection, resurrected Christ, and out of that, there were some truths that he could just never let go of, truths that really can be and should be for us the continuing fruit of the divining moment of the resurrection of Christ. I, I want to read an extensive part of chapter 1. This is one long sentence in Greek. So if you have a hard time following along, welcome to the club, all right? And, and, and I'm not going to go back and try to sort all of it out and that kind of stuff. I, I just want to pull out some pieces that really speak to what we're doing today. But, but to make sure you understand that this is connected to the resurrection I want to start with verse 20. He, and that's a reference to God, demonstrated this power in the Messiah, in other words, in Christ, by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand in the heavens. Far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Now, Well, Paul, he gets to the end and he says, listen, all the stuff that I've been talking about, the way God's power has worked, his plan, the way he changes us, the gifts that he gives us, the eternities, the inheritance we give, all of that has been demonstrated to be valid because Jesus is back. (laughs) He's back. So let's pick up at verse 3. Just follow along and I'll go back and, and pull a few things. Now, Paul is writing to this church and he says, praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Because Christ is resurrected, he really can be the source of every, not just some, but every spiritual blessing in the heavens. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself, according to his favor and will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us with in the beloved. We have redemption in him through his blood, the forgiveness of the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, that he lavished in us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will. In other words, God showed us what he was doing, why he was doing it, how he was doing it, according to his good pleasure that he planned in him before the administration of the days of fulfillment. In other words, before the planet even began, God had planned all this stuff out to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth. We have also received an inheritance in him, predestined, in other words, preordered by God according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will. What God decides happens so that we who had already put, out, put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to his glory. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, the resurrection puts the good in the good news of the gospel, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He's a down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possessions to the praise of his glory. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord, 
Jesus and your love for all the saints, I've not stopped praying for you. And here's what I pray. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. You know what God has done, how he's done it, what that means to you, what it can matter to your everyday lives. I pray that the perception of your mind might be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the glorious riches of his inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his strength. That Paul's prayer is that they'd be able to realize, they'd be able to experience all that God has blessed them with in Christ, etc. So powerful stuff. Now, listen, if you're a little confused, again, welcome to the club. But let me make a couple of points for us today. You know, the story of Jesus is amazing. It's amazing because the tomb is empty. Not because somebody stole Jesus' body. Not because he somehow resuscitated from from being swooned through all of his injuries, but because Jesus Christ has been brought back from the dead by the Father forever. And Paul met that risen Christ on the Damascus Road. And, and he went from, <laughs> from being the one who was the most committed to destroying anybody, would even suggest that Jesus was back from the dead, to being the one who couldn't keep his mouth shut to talk about all that it can mean for us. And here's a few truths I want you to see. The defining moment of the resurrection of Christ means that you and I can be forgiven. You and I can be forgiven. Now, that may not be brand new news to any of you, but it ought to be incredible news. Paul puts it this way in verse 7. We have received redemption in him, in Christ, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, we don't use the word trespasses very often when we talk about our sin, but the Bible doesn't shy away from using the word sin. You know, but, you know, we live in a time where I think I think we, we struggle to conceptualize or to understand what sin really means. I think part of, part of the struggle that really happens in people's lives when they hear about Christ, his life, his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, et cetera, they, they say, well, some of the urgency, that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm not really a bad person. You know, I, I, I may not be perfect, but I'm really not a bad person. I'm not sure I would really consider myself to be a sinner. And so I'm not sure I really need forgiveness, at least in any dramatic form. And, and so there's this confusion that somehow or another that when we say that we are sinners, that I'm a sinner, that you are a sinner, that somehow or another we're saying what, what, what we're really, what's being heard is you're saying that I'm an evil person. And I know I'm not an evil person. And I want to tell you, you're right. You're not an evil person. You may be a sinner, I'm a sinner, but, but, but you're not an evil person. You know, even Jesus admits that the Gentiles, who were considered to be outside of the faith, right, right, they were the heathens, they were the ones who really didn't know God, these were the people who were most likely to do the worst things in the world, right? He said even the Gentiles know how to give good gifts to their children. You know, say, by worldly standards, people really are good. And there are some good, decent people in the world. In fact, most of the world is that way. We know there's some evil people, right? People who will strap bombs onto themselves and walk into airports and into subway stations and blow themselves up, just indiscriminately killing people. We're at the finish line of a major race in a major city on the East Coast, 
place we might know of. We know that there are people out there who, who are sex traffickers and will do anything they can to destroy people's lives in order to just make a little bit of money. We know there's other people out there who are pedophiles, and the list just goes on and on. There are evil people out there, but we say, that's not me. But biblically, goodness is never equated with holiness. Goodness is never equated with righteousness. We can be sinners and be good people, but we can't be sinners and be holy. We can't be sinners and be righteous. And the struggle is that it's not just what we do and what we say that makes us sinners. It's what we think. It's what we feel. It's our attitudes even, right? I'll give you some examples. I mean, some of you have heard, you know, my story when I was 11 years old. I came to know Christ and, you know, just really convicted, you know, convicted of a, a lot of different things in that early years of journey, you know. And, and I, and I got to tell you, you know, even at that point in time, you can, you can have a sense of sin and and I wasn't a bad person, but I got to tell you, you know, when, 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 you're playing, when you're playing a game on the playground and you know you got called out at second or third or whatever it was and the other guy cheated, you know, and, and you're th- you just want to tr- and, and get him right where, you know, it really hurt, you know, kind of idea. I can't use those terminologies in, in service. But you, 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 and the only reason you don't is because you know you're going to get in trouble with the school and then you're going to get in trouble with your parents. You may not have done it, so that could qualify you as a good person because you thought it, because I thought it, I wanted to do it, I'm a sinner. When you have kids in the neighborhood that, you know, they're all right, but they're really not the kids you choose to really hang out with the most, but every once in a while you really seek them out and want to hang out with them because you know that their dad keeps girly magazines in their basement and you might get a chance, so we're going to get a look. The Bible called that lust. And even though it, that never happened, <laughs> just the very desire and intent makes you a sinner. And, and the scripture tells us that in Christ, because he died on a cross and was resurrected from the grave, this power now is available that in Christ, through our faith in Christ, you and I can be forgiven. And we can be made holy. We can be made righteous. Not just good, but holy. We can be made righteous. We can made be fit to live in the presence of God in this life, in the life to come. It's great stuff. You know, and one of the amazing things, and you know, and, and, and Melissa talked about here in words like mercy and grace, is that because of the resurrection, our lives can be governed by our futures and not by our past. And for some of you, for some of us, that's a huge point because you're carrying such burdens of things where you've disappointed or hurt or mistakes or choices that you've made, actions that you've done. And, and God, God can forgive you from all of that. And you can be set free and you can be righteous in the eyes of God. But there's more to it than just being forgiven. Paul says that the defining moment of Christ's resurrection, which he experienced on that road to Damascus, is that you and I can be different people right now. You know, a few minutes ago, Melissa told you that when she became a believer and she started walking with Christ, she, her sister said to her, you know, you're not the same girl anymore. Because she's changed. 
And her reaction is, thank God. When, when, when because Jesus has been resurrected from the grave, this defining moment that creates all the other defining moments in the life of Christ is that Jesus Christ makes it possible for you and I to be different people right now. You know, and just in verse 5, he talks about us being adopted into God's family. We literally get to become the children of God, you know. And, and, and later in the chapter, down in, in, in uh, verses 10 and 13 and following, he talks about the fact that we have the Holy Spirit of God living within us, you know. We literally have God taking residence within us in the person of the Holy Spirit, right? You know, we, we have this power that's at work within the immeasurable greatness of his power that's working within us. We, we become new people. Now, that does not mean that we become problem-free. If you master that, you should be up here teaching. Doesn't mean that we become problem-free. Doesn't mean we stop making mistakes from time to time. But we become new people. And we understand that we have the presence of God working in us. And, and we have a confidence that's within us that we actually can be different that we can live for God. We, we, we understand that we matter to God. We're no longer trying to build our self-esteem by how successful we are or what we achieve or you know, what our performance levels are. We're not trying to somehow impress everybody else or they'll think a lot of us. We just simply relish in the fact that God says, you're my child, I love you, there's nothing you can do about it. It's liberating, isn't it, Melissa? It's liberating. And there's this strength that just enters into our lives and we know... I can do this. I can do this. I got the power of God. I got the presence of God within me. I don't have to be under my circumstances. I can be growing through my circumstances. And I got to tell you, I've been blessed in my ministry journey watching people do just that. Where some of the toughest experiences enter into their lives that would crush people and they rise up and somehow they manage to rejoice. We become new people. You know, and, and, and Paul understood that when, when he had that encounter with a resurrected Christ on the Damascus Road, that that defining moment of Christ's resurrection, of his encounterment, is that his life now can matter for something so much more than it ever had before. He'd been forgiven for his past, for persecuting the church, persecuting Christ. He'd been forgiven for all of that, all of his pride and his ambition. He'd become a new creature in Christ, and he knew that his life could matter for something so much more today. You know, it's interesting at the end of verse 14, he says that we have become this, we are given the Holy Spirit and we've become God's possession so that we can be the cause of God being glorified and praise being given to his name. You know, your, your life and mine could be so much more than just getting through another week. <laughs> you know, I, I just want to get through this week. I just want to get through this month. I just want to get through this year. I just want to get through another tax season. You know, whatever you're struggling with. We have all these kind of moments to come up. You know, oh, I, you know, I may, you know, we've got this health thing. We can just get through that. If we can just get through, you know, this job situation, we can just get, we, we, we have all these kinds of, if life is just about survival, boy, we're missing out on one of the greatest gifts that God's trying to give us in the resurrection. Because God says, guess what? You get to be an animated trophy of my glory. You, you get to be a living monument of my grace. And everything that you do can have eternal significance. It's not just about trying to make enough money so the money doesn't run out before the life runs out. 
but it's, it's building a life that's laying up treasures in heaven, and we get to have an impact. It's incredible. And if, and if we're just living in a spirit of survival, and we've lost this idea that we really are ambassadors for Christ, that we're witnesses for him, and that the live is to Christ, and if we've lost the, the, just the, the amazement that God's taken us out of the bleachers and put us into the game of the, the spreading of the kingdom, if we've lost that higher sense of significance and the great power that he can work in our lives, then we've missed out on one of the greatest gifts of the resurrection. That our lives are more about than, our lives are supposed to be about far more than just surviving. They're supposed to be about making a difference forever. Forever. Just one last truth. The defining moment of the resurrection means that you and I can live forever with God in heaven. Verse 11, Paul spoke of this inheritance that we had in him, this pre, being predestined in God that, that, that we were going to be with him. Jesus, on the last night of his life, spoke to the disciples, but he says, I'm going to get your room ready in heaven. I'm going to put the mint on the pillow. <laughs> going to fold down the shika. I'm getting it ready for you. And you know how to get there because I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The, the resurrection means that you and I can experience life here, and then at death we transition to eternity with the Father forever. And I got to tell you, this is a, a, a message that, I don't know, I, th- I think sometimes we, we don't really want to think about death much, right? And, we, you know, and sometimes we just think, well, it's just a bunch of spiritual mumbo-jumbo that make us kind of feel better that life, we're mortal and all that kind of stuff. I got to tell you, you know, I'm, I've, been one fu- I've been averaging one funeral a month for more than the last year. I've got another one coming up this Saturday. High school friend of mine, his mom passed away. They all live out of state. She's going to be buried here. I'll be doing her funeral. I got to tell you, you know, sometimes you're burying people who are in their late 80s and they're people of faith and they've lived a long, good life and they've done some things and there's just a, a certain joy in some of that. It's mixed emotions at least. But there's other times when you're dealing with a young adult struggling maybe with some of the same feelings Melissa was having, didn't find the answers, and take their own life. Those kind of funerals, I got to tell you, they really suck. I don't know if you can say that from the pulpit, but I just did. <laughs> we, can, we can always edit that out, right, Tom? And I got to tell you, without this promise, that we really have been set aside for eternity because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I don't know. There really is no hope. And to live that way, without that hope, without that remembrance, without that conviction, that death is just a transition to the next phase of enjoying God forever is an incredible message. But like Paul, the fact of the resurrection needs to create a defining moment for us. His was on the Damascus Road. The people who heard his message in the city of Ephesus had had their defining moment. He talks about that in verse 13, and he said, when you hear the message of truth, when you hear the gospel of your salvation, and you believed. I got to tell you, all of this stuff about the resurrection, which makes the story of Jesus amazing, where you take this guy who, never adventured far from home, 
really didn't leave us any set of writings to really kind of guide us and to teach us and to challenge us. Guy who really didn't create much of a movement. Guy who got laid in a tomb after dying on a cross and really in everybody's mind the story was over. That the way that that story got unleashed into an amazing story is that Jesus was resurrected. And every single one of us, just like Thomas in our video, has got to choose, are we going to believe? Paul said the Ephesians heard the gospel, the good that's in the good news because of the resurrection of Christ, that we can be forgiven, that we can become new creatures, that our lives can matter for eternity, that we can spend eternity with the Father, that, that all of that challenges us to have our defining moment of, are we going to believe ourselves? And it's my great privilege today as I stand before you to be able to offer you that, that, that defining moment. This is a moment when you can say, as Melissa told us about just a few minutes ago, you can say yes to God through putting your faith in him. And I would encourage you to make this Easter your defining moment in your walk with God. Let's pray together for just a minute. Just while your heads are bowed, you know what? Our commitment at Hope Chapel is never to embarrass you. So we're not going to ask you to raise your hand or stand up or do any of that kind of stuff. But that doesn't mean I don't want to offer you a specific moment where you can choose, where you can personally place your faith in the resurrected Christ. And I'm just going to say a brief prayer, and you can just say it silently in your own mind, just like our, our thoughts and our attitudes can betray us. They can also affirm our relationship with God. You can pray a prayer just like this in your own mind and heart. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his amazing story. I know I need to be forgiven. I may be good, but I know I'm not holy. Forgive me in Christ. I'm not sure all that this means, but I invite him to be a part of my life through choosing to believe today. And I commit myself to learning what that journey is all about as I seek to live by faith. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. God, thank you for the way that you have affirmed to us today that the resurrection is the defining moment, not just for Jesus, not just for us, but in human history. God, let us rejoice today because he's alive. And we pray in the name of the living one, Jesus himself. Amen.